Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Lyons. On this episode, my guest is Vincent Minervino. As always, you can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Enterprise Hardcore Podcast and on Twitter at Podcast Hardcore. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting the Patreon monthly. Uh, like I've been teasing, very soon we're going to have some uh, early episodes and some other exclusive content coming there, so just keep your eyes open for that. As always, the link for that's in the bio. Uh, there's also been a GoFundMe going around for a little while now, trying to get some equipment uh, to start doing some video stuff for these episodes. So again, check the uh, show notes for this, and you'll find both links for that if you want to help support the podcast. So yeah, this is episode 88. Uh, this is going to be a pre-recorded conversation with uh, Vincent Minervino. So Vincent has been living in New Jersey for about 15 years, uh, but our conversation actually focuses more on his time coming up in the Rochester music scene. Uh, Vincent was a part of a handful of local bands before joining Nobody Cares, uh, where he actually joined on them on on drums at first, and then he switched over to vocals uh, shortly before they changed their name to Roses Are Red. So we'll be talking a lot about his time in Roses Are Red, from working with me on my label Enterprise Records with their first full length to eventually signing to Trustkill and becoming a full-time band. And now Vincent and his wife Magdalena run a surf music uh, label in New Jersey called High Tide Recordings. So check out the interview and you'll hear all about Vincent's story there. Yeah, so what's what's been going on though, man? All good. Um, really, really busy. Actually, you caught me in like the middle of this crazy life transition at the moment. I don't know if you know, but I, I worked, I've worked, been working for Apple for uh, sixteen years. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, basically, when when Rose the Red dissolved in in '07, and I like moved to Jersey, I just um, started working at Apple as like a temporary thing. It was like, oh, you know, I guess I should probably get a job and until I figure out what my next move's gonna be, and. Uh, you know, that was like a month before the iPhone was announced. And, you know, six months later, like I'm, you know, going full time. And, you know, three years later, I'm getting into like management. And here we are, you know, 15 years later. Um, and uh, I'm actually just just now just gave my resignation from that job and um, like doing the label and, and events like full time with my wife. We're about to open a retail store as well. That's dope, dude. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's like, you know, it's like this 15-year detour, you know, but um, it was good. I mean, it was like we, we were able to build a life, and I met Magda at uh, at, at Apple, and um, it's good. But, like, the timing is just, you know, the, the, the opportunities that are happening for the label right now are just kind of kind of crazy, and I just, like, I need to I need to pull, put my full attention to it. So, literally, like, I still technically am employed with Apple. I just... Uh, I got about another week. I'm actually on a a, a, um, a medical leave at the moment because I got uh, back surgery like three months ago. Yes. So, yeah. So all that's like happening and it's crazy, but I'm feeling good. And we we were like our lease on our space is like in review and we should be in there in like two weeks and uh, tons of releases coming out and the summer holidays coming up. So, yeah, a lot's going on. But this is this has caused me, you know, to, to sort of pause and like you know, think about that time in my life, which, um, you know, seems like another lifetime. I'm sure people say that to you all the time, but, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it's been interesting to sort of prepare for this conversation because I wanted to, you know, sort of revisit some of the, some of the connection points and the dots that sort of like, you know, brought me from this, you know, young kid listening to like green day cassettes on my paper route to, you know, being in a full-time touring band. And it's, it's pretty interesting to, to sort of connect it all backwards so i'm excited to talk to you about it you know i usually uh 
like chat with with the guest a little bit before the interview and then i cut like a live intro on the air but if you don't mind i feel like everything you just said like kind of belongs in this interview and we should just kind of start from from where you started is that cool or yeah yeah totally cool um so yeah i'll just cut the, the live intro i usually do separately and we'll just like literally jump in from there um yeah oh cool I've, I've been really enjoying the the podcast by the way you know I, I caught it really early on you know with like the the rob the rob interviews and uh you know the chris ring stuff the mike jeffrey like Vinny gargiulo kevin mahoney and you know so i've been i followed along uh, very early on this summer like i said it's been a little crazy for me so i haven't caught a lot of the uh, recent episodes but um i was really psyched when you launched this it's it's really cool to kind of archive all these stories i'm excited you're doing it i obviously appreciate hearing you say that um i mean obviously as as we'll get to in the in the actual interview there's a lot of personal connections with all these people so um that that's what made it easy early on starting this was i just you know contacted friends and i was like yo i want to do this podcast do you mind if you're interviewed for it and yeah i was, I was a little apprehensive in the beginning about like approaching like more well-known people, so to speak, or whatever. And then I started, like, my girlfriend, Sarah, is always like, who wouldn't want to be interviewed on a podcast? You know what I mean? And yeah, I can't. I That's can, great. There's been a couple people that have, like, either said no or not responded. But for the most part, everyone's always just excited to to kind of tell their life story, so to speak, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I try not to get too wrapped up in, like, nostalgia. Um, but, like, this it's it's nice to revisit it and it's nice to like get it on record if you want to ever like kind of go listen back and and i don't know these days you know as you get older you sort of like start thinking about like your legacy and what you're gonna leave behind and i don't know even if it only exists in the digital world like a podcast or whatever it's still just nice to know that somebody might stumble upon it you know later later on so thanks for doing the work i actually interviewed matt challenger last night you know who played in like the avram and a bunch of other bands like that and these episodes yeah. are going to be kind of spread out weird. So it's not going to air back to back, but him and I kind of talked about that and like getting back to like me starting the podcast. Like that was what I was thinking of. Like, I mean, obviously I almost died the year before, you know, and now I have kids too. So I'm like, I got to really start thinking about my legacy and like what I want them to know about what I've done in my life, you know? And I've, and in yeah. my opinion, like the coolest things I've done are definitely what has been talked about on this podcast. You know, it's amazing. That's amazing. Well, yeah, then it, it absolutely deserves to be archived. And, you know, I'm glad you're you're putting the time into it because, you know, a lot of people, I think, you know, once they have kids and once, you know, sort of like adult life kicks in, it's like they sort of put these passions to the side. And, um, you know, even if even if that was the case for, for years, it's great to, to see you coming back to it, you know, and yeah. uh, and encouraging other people to do the same. You know, like I said, preparing for this conversation, uh, you know. I uncovered a lot of things I sort of forgot about or haven't thought about in a while. That's been one of the things people say a lot when I talk to them is I, there's a lot of things that I hadn't thought about in a while. And it's, it's so much fun uncovering these memories. And like you said, and I agree, like, I'm not trying to just wax on nostalgia. Like I've been trying to mix in like more current stuff and keeping my fingers on the pulse of what's going on. I have noticed a lot of my regular uh, listeners kind of prefer these types of interviews where we're talking about like the heyday or whatever. Sure. there's, I mean, as far as like hardcore, punk, any of that stuff, there's just so much good stuff going on right now, too. It's like, you know, I don't want to live in the past, obviously. Um, yeah. Well, but, it's interesting as a, it's interesting as a label owner, too. And, you know, we can talk about this a little later, but like that's something we battle all the time as a as a label owner. Like people always ask me, they're like, why on earth in 2016 would you start a record label? Like, does anyone even care about new music? And, you know, everyone kind of, there's sort of this general consensus with like, especially older crowd, you know, that like all the great music was made 20 years ago and then it stopped. 
Um, but that's that's truly not the case. I mean, there's so much great music out there, you know, hardcore music and, and the stuff we're doing and, you know, even pop music. There's so much, so much great music. And, uh, you know, it's it's nice to live in the in the present, but it's also nice to, um, you know, kind of look back at a time, you know, before the Internet and before, you know, everyone just socialized virtually. And, you know, um, it, it was a totally different feeling. And it's nice to, to sort of explore that again. And that's a perfect segue for us to kind of take things back a little bit. So I know I first met you in like 99, 2000, but I kind of want to go back even further and, and like sure. tell, everybody, tell everybody kind of like about your upbringing and just kind of like what you were into musically as a kid too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my earliest music memories are, you know, listening to my parents like Elvis and Beach Boys records, you know, they were really into, you know, like early rock and roll um and you know i would just sort of listen to that stuff on repeat um when i was younger and you know as i got old enough to sort of develop my own tastes um you know actually i was very influenced by my older sister i have a sister that's actually 21 years older than me so you know when i was nine years old uh you know she was listening to you know blood sugar sex magic and and nirvana Nevermind, and you know i would sort of hang out in her room and you know, I would, I would absorb that stuff. And, you know, I was kind of, you know, fascinated by it. And my parents were horrified, of course, me listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers when I'm nine years old. They were, they were pretty like kind of, you know, conservative and strict, but um, yeah, I mean, through my sister, she was really into like new wave in the eighties and then got into the alternative thing in the early nineties. And, you know, as the alternative thing sort of started to become, you know, mainstream music, um, I, you know, sort of started to develop my own tastes within that world. You know, I remember discovering like Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream in 93, um, buying Weezer Blue without ever even hearing it just because of the cover, you know, was like, what, what is this? Just a blue album with dudes on it? Like, I have to have this, you know, a record giant in Canandaigua. Um, Green Day Dookie, I remember buying that cassette tape. It was blue. I wore like, wore like two of those out. I was so obsessed with that record. Um, and, you know, just like really got into that alternative world and Rochester, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, what the world was like outside of Rochester. My frame of reference was kind of smaller then, but I remember, you know, the nerve being this huge presence in Rochester, WBER. Um, and I just like had all access to like all this new music coming through. And it was such an exciting time for like rock music, you know, mid nineties. Um, and I don't know, I just. I would play music with my friends. I mean, I, uh, I I played guitar, I played drums, but we never really like did much formal stuff. We just kind of, you know, would jam in my basement and then, you know, we'd get tired of it. We'd go skateboarding or go go downtown and hang out at the local record store. And I'd, you know, hopefully be able to score a, a CD for two or three bucks that, you know, would, would be something that I, that I could uh, chew on for a couple of days. But, um, you know, we, as, as we got into, um, you know, kind of later in high school, that's when you know, we sort of started to discover that like, all right, like if we, you know, call this thing a band, maybe we can, you know, throw a show, um, you know, at a local VFW or something. But, um, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, it was it was um, really early on, just, you know, early rock music. And then I discovered alternative, you know, in, in my teen years. And that's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little more about the crossover into the emo and hardcore world once we get rolling a little more. I think I think the, the the really good follow up to what you've been saying, and then you kind of touched on it a little bit. A lot of local people will get this, and then for the you know regional and possibly even international listeners, we'll have to describe it a little bit better. But I always think about this when people are talking about like towns and stuff. And obviously, like I'm based out of Rochester, New York, which 
you know, maybe a half million people, but you, you, you've referenced Canandaigua a couple of times. So is that, is that where you grew up? Cause I know you and Brian Allerton were friends and that, and that you guys lived. Yep. So Canandaigua. Yep. yep. Canandaigua. I mean, I, I, I moved to Canandaigua when I was in eighth grade. So, um, and you know, grew up in Clifton Springs, actually a little further South, I believe. Um, but yeah, moved to Canandaigua in eighth grade. So I don't know, that's kind of where a lot of my like childhood memories just sort of come into focus because, you know, um, met, you know, met people like Brian when I moved to Canandaigua, met people like uh, Nate Morris when I moved to Canandaigua. And those were sort of, you know, people that, you know, were really, really major connections for me to like sort of plug into the larger local scene in Rochester. So before we get into that local scene, I just want to touch on it a little bit more, though. Um, I interviewed Nate Derby some episodes back and he's from that area too, Canandaigua. So okay, yeah, we talked about it a little bit, but I mean, for people that aren't listening, like it's it's. It's not a big city, obviously. You're coming from like a small town. And as you mentioned beforehand, this was like pre-internet. Um, I know you had the one record store there, but like, was it hard to like kind of connect with like the Rochester scene eventually? Like, or or did you guys like find that pretty easy to do? Because like, I'm, I know we'll get to like Nate being in shoe yeah. and stuff like that. Totally. Well, um, one, one major uh, turning point in that venture was, you know, when Brian got a car. <laughs> so like, you know, we were sort of contained to to Canandaigua, um, you know, for years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of music going on in that town. I mean, it's kind of an artsy town. There was an arts council downtown that had music all the time. There was, um, a, you know, a billiards hall that had live music. Um, there was like a place uh, called, um, uh, oh, geez, oh, what was it called? The Java Cow, I think, that had like, um, you know, live bands and stuff. So there was a ton of music going on in that town. But Brian was a couple of years older than me. And as, as soon as he got a car, it was like, all right, you know, up to Rochester, like every chance we got, you know, and that was kind of the turning point for that. And then I guess to kind of fast forward, maybe just a touch. I know I've mentioned the band name a couple of times and you mentioned Nate Morris, like was Shoe Pillow, like one of your first uh, interactions with like the local scene, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, Nate and I became friends and, you know, that was that was like he had that band rolling already. But, um, you know, when he wanted to add a second guitar player, um, you know, I sort of hopped in and, and helped out. And, um, geez, we would throw, you know, these these VFW shows in Canandaigua. Um, and, uh, you know, there'd be hundreds and hundreds of kids. And, uh, you know, we started as we got a little older, we started to reach out, you know, to surrounding scenes. I remember one time we brought Gym Class Heroes over from Newark. Um, I remember we'd even brought in this band called Girlfriend's Kill from Buffalo. Um, they were like this cool, you know, sort of like melodic, emo, like early emo band. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, Shupila was was sort of my, I, I think was was like the first connection to a scene, if you will, because that's when we started playing alongside Nobody Cares. Um, you know, Shupila and Nobody Cares played together a ton. I remember we, we played like, um, I think there was like a, a bowling alley that we used to play over in like Newark area or something. But anyway, um yeah, Shupila was the connection to Nobody Cares, to the surrounding scenes. And then we sort of started to migrate up toward Rochester. And that's when, you know, that's when we met a couple of years later. And I guess, like, had you already been, like, influenced and, and like, kind of checking in more on, like, like punk and emo and even, like, hardcore stuff like, at this point, too, then? Yeah, you know, so it's it's pretty linear, actually. I went and deconstructed this, and it's it's pretty interesting. So, you know, as I mentioned, I was really into, like, the alternative scene and um you know i would just sort of like get my new music from from the radio at that time i guess that's kind of how you did it and um i remember very distinctly you know listening to all these alternative bands i started to like 
I started to like really get into WBER and like really pride myself on like discovering bands that were like really new, you know, to the scene. And one one that stands out to me was in 1997. I remember um, WBER brought Incubus to Water Street Music Hall and they were touring on Science. The album wasn't even out yet. And uh, I remember going to that show. Geez, there was probably, I don't know, 50 people there. It was tiny. There was like it was like almost empty. And the opening band was called Far. Um, and at the time, you know, they were both on Immortal Records and they both had records that were coming out. I remember going there to see Incubus, but I remember being just blown away by Far. And I bought their CD, Water and Solutions was the CD that they had out. And um, that was the moment where, like, I, I would pinpoint that Far is the band that sort of got me interested in emo and punk because you know with far um you know i then discovered one line drawing who was like jonah's side project one line drawing did a split with the juliana theory juliana theory did a split with Sensefield. Sensefield did a split with jimmy Eat world and then from jimmy Eat world it was like the promise ring saves the day you know elliot all these bands and i was it was just blown open you know from there and um, it got me thinking, like, man, splits were such a cool thing. Like, I wish bands still did that, you know. Um, but that was, like, literally the, the, the entry point. It was, like, Far, Juliana Theory, Sensefield, Jimmy World. And, you know, I was just totally enamored with that scene from that point on. And what's really weird is we'll get to Roses Are Red a little bit later, obviously. And I've always kind of established, like, a correlation between, like, Incubus, Hoobastank, uh, that British band with, like, the pervert singer or whatever. Like all those bands kind of influenced that sound a little bit too, I feel like, because they kind of broke the door open. Like, even though they weren't like screamo bands or whatever, you know what I mean? But like after they blew up, like I feel like all that other stuff started too, like right after, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think like, you know, a band like that, like, like that was, you know, as far as I can tell, that was one of the earliest inklings that like, you know, emo or screamo or like, you know, post-hardcore like was going to have this you know mainstream appeal i mean one other band that stands out to me at that time was glassjaw you know um i remember you know i was working for my school newspaper because i realized that um you know first of all i was really into writing when i was a kid so i actually like printed and distributed this like scene around canadagua you know for years i would literally just write about cds that i bought because I, I like needed an outlet to tell people about the stuff that i love but as I got got it later in the high school, I realized, all right, if I work for the paper, then, you know, I can reach out to these record labels as a media presence and say, hey, this band's coming to town. You know, can I get tickets to the photo pass? So I did that with Roadrunner. I did it with like all these all these labels. And, um, you know, I remember I started getting the physical um, promotional packages to my to my school. And I remember opening one from from Roadrunner and it was Glassjaw and there was an eight by ten you know, like a, a black and white eight by 10 and a copy of everything you ever wanted to know about silence. And I was like, I mean, what year was that? 97 Glassjaw? Um, it's gotta be 97 or 98. I was going to say 98. Cause they were in another band called sons of Abraham that I saw. in Yes. So I think that, I think it would have been 98, but I, 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 I'm not as familiar with Glassjaw as you obviously. <laughs> yeah, actually it was 2000 that, uh, okay. the Glassjaw came out, but I remember, you know, so that was my senior year of high school. But I remember, I remember, you know, I had discovered, you know, Far and Incubus a couple of years earlier, but I was already kind of into this scene. And then I remember like getting this stuff, you know, from like practically major labels, you know, to a couple of years later. And I remember thinking to myself like, man, this is, this is sort of like the new, 
this is going to be like the like the new uh, sound that gets popular within the rock world, you know. And that was probably, you know, what sort of inspired me to pursue it, you know, because I was 17, 18 years old. I, you know, I had no plan. So I was like, I just wanted to play music. So, you know, for me, if I see when I see a scene that have, you know, has energy and has buzz, like I, I wanted to be a part of it. So that's probably what inspired me to pursue it. So there's actually a, a a real distinct correlation between you and I there. Like you, you kind of like then dip your toe in the waters of like hardcore and stuff in our scene. And I was booking a lot of shows there and I kind of made it known that I was trying to go more like pro and full time with that. And people definitely knew that you were trying to be like in a, in a real serious band. And I feel like at that time in the DIY scene, especially that kind of stuff was frowned upon. And I think you and I both kind of, and I didn't put this in the notes or mention it to you beforehand, but I was definitely thinking of it like while getting ready to do the interview. I think we were both kind of like looked at differently because we were trying to be more pro with this, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, um, I think there was like some there was some people that saw that as like, you know, wanting to monetize or capitalize on a scene. But for me, it was always just about like, that's what, you know, that's what I want to be doing. You know, every day when I wake up, you know, I want it to be you know, writing songs and recording and touring. That's like what I wanted to do. And, you know, as, as fun as it was for me to, you know, work at Guitar Center and play a show, you know, every couple of weeks in town, like I didn't want to work at Guitar Center. I wanted to be on the road and I wanted to record and I wanted to be, you know, on tour with bigger bands and stealing fans. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I, I think from the very beginning, I was sort of like, you know, pretty honest about that. Like I, I you know, and, and it was interesting, um, you know, as I sort of met certain people, certain relationships faded because of my values in that space. And then certain relationships got stronger because of the, the values in that space. And honestly, a lot of that is like kind of how I started playing with Nobody Cares and it became Rose of Red. Like that group of people all were of the same mindset. We all wanted to do that. Like none of us wanted to work day jobs. All of us wanted to be in a band full time. That was our goal from the beginning. And that's kind of like when we all came together, it was like, all right, like we will do, we will work as hard as it takes to make that happen. And like I told you before the interview, that that's probably going to be one of the primary focuses of this interview. But there's a couple other bands uh, locally that you you were in that I definitely want to talk about. But is there anything in between? And we don't have to dive too deep into it if there is. But is there anything in between like Shoe Pillow and Arm's Length? Um, well, the exam was, uh, a, a band that sort of bridged those, those, those bands a little bit. Um, you know, when I was playing with Nate and Shoe Pillow, you know, we would, we would sort of play these, we would play these, you know, local, local shows. I, mean, I think we actually popped down to Newark for some shows. And, um, you know, I remember playing with like the Chuds and, uh, you know, met, met all those people. And, um, you know, when, you know, we we all didn't like jump into a band right away, but I remember like the scene, like we all just sort of started to see each other at, you know, at the shows. And, you know, again, as we sort of started to migrate up to Rochester, it was like Eli Fagan shows or St. Joe's shows. You know, I remember that, uh, you know, playing with Nate and, you know, knowing Tyler and knowing Matt, like later on, it just sort of became this this um, thing that, that Tyler wanted to do. I think it was sort of his idea. You know, he was really into you know, kind of the, like the early screamo stuff, um, you know, like, like Orchid, Page 99, Seisha, you know, Majority Rule, all those bands. And um, it was really interesting at the time too, because you would see like, I don't know, you'd see like Majority Rule on the same bill as like Elliot. Like it was just so interesting that like those two worlds 
could coexist and and people would enjoy the bands you know like just as much but it was such a diverse time where like super heavy bands and super melodic bands could sort of be on the same bill together but i think like us kind of all you know becoming part of that that scene that was happening at those places you know the exam kind of was 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 born out of that and um the exam's a funny band because like you know we we were sort of like this enigma because like we never really recorded until like the very end of the band we actually i think we actually released our demo at our last show um but uh it was just like this theatrical thing but the music was good and like it was just sort of an interesting outlet for you know nate um you know was able to kind of outlet some of his like you know uh his ideas that maybe wouldn't have fit into shoe pillow and tyler was able to uh, get some of his ideas out there that wouldn't have fit into building on fire at the time you know and matt was just this like you know solid bass player that could just really play anything um so the exam was sort of this 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 it was like sort of the first band I did in like the the hardcore scene, if you will. Um, and, you know, Arm's Length kind of came, they, they overlapped a bit, but Arm's Length kind of came later. And that became actually a really kind of serious project for me. So real quick, though, the, the thing that you're mentioning in all those names in the exam, it's so interesting to think back on how close knit and kind of inbred our, our scene was too. like you mentioned all those dudes from the exam. You got you who was in Arm's Length that we'll get to in a second and Roses are Red. Nate was in Standfast and ended up being in a bunch of other bands. Yep. The other dudes were in Building on Fire. Like it was just like all like all these guys kind of came together. And let's not skip over the fact that you guys also did a hate breed cover at the Fairport VFW at, at a show. Oh shit! Too. Oh my god, I forgot about that. <laughs> I remember Allerton just turning to me before you guys did it and being like, "Yo, you might want to you might want to move up for this one." Or oh my god! I, and I was just like so shocked that you guys were covering a hate song, but it was it was fucking awesome, obviously, for me. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I completely forgot about that. But uh, yeah, that band was just funny. We just tried to do like unexpected stuff. You know, I think I like played drums backwards and uh, there was some nudity involved. But uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was it was. And let's not forget also Kelly, Kelly Marcano uh, from the Damn Wiener Kids was also in that band. Um, so, yeah, it, it's true, though, like. I think that the scene, you know, was small enough where, you know, if you had one project, uh, bands would play together and then they would discover other interests and, and new projects would spawn out of that. And that was like part of the fun, you know? Um, yeah, it was, it was great. And that obviously segues perfectly into Arm's Length, who also had people that were in a ton of bands. And my first memory of you joining this band, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I booked a show at the Bug Jar and you guys played with Darkest Hour. And I'm pretty sure it must have been your first show in the band. Because you walked up to Travis, who was the singer of the band at the time, and you're like, "Hey, how you doing?" I'm, and you call, you went by Vinny at the time. You're like, "Hey, I'm Vinny. Uh, I'm, I'm playing guitar now." <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I remember that show being absolutely terrified, to be honest, because I, I was way, like, way in over my head when I joined that band, because you know, if you remember, uh, Eric Lepore was the guitar player before me for Break of Dawn, and Arms Like kind of started out as like this technical, like they were like. They were like real technical. And um, I remember when, you know, Eric was kind of transitioning out and I knew Dustin, you know, from playing around the scene and stuff. And I loved Arms Length. I remember loving the band. I remember hearing The Fall, which was the tune from The Split with Building on Fire. And I remember, um, you know, Dustin sending me that and hearing The Fall and then Sandcastle's 10 Feet Tall, which was actually a, a B-side of that record. But I remember thinking to myself, like, all right, this band is sort of going into a more melodic direction. 
which I connected with a little bit more, right? Like I mentioned, I was big into like Jimmy Eat World and the Juliana theory and it still was kind of heavy, but um, you know, as the band was, was like progressing in sound and they needed a guitar player, like I, I definitely raised my hand and, and went for it, but I was way, I was not a good enough guitar player to be in that band, like straight up, <laughs> but I figured it out, you know? And then I know eventually, well, first of all, shout out to Travis. Um, I'm going to get him on here eventually. I don't know how, how well, uh, you've kept, I don't know how well you've kept in touch with him, but he's doing some really cool shit locally. Now he's got like a music school for kids, uh, Rochester amazing. music lab. So I definitely want to get him on here and talk about that in the next couple of months. Um, honestly, honestly, I'll say, you know, um, Travis was one of the most inspiring people I've, I feel like I've ever played with. Um, you know, I remember late nights hanging out at his apartment you know, we, we practically wrote the lyrics of, you know, transmissions from the October sky. We wrote, we wrote those lyrics together, you know, and like, he had such like a poetic mind and such like a, just like a sweet um, approach. You know, he was just, he had, he was unapologetic about being in love. Um, You know, the perfect, the perfect person to be a singer in an emo band. And, you know, um, geez, I, you know, I listened to transmission from the October sky this morning in preparation for this conversation. And it's just like, man, you know, took me back, like Bridgetown, that song. I know that that's about an experience that he had in Barbados, you know, kind of uh, finding finding love there. And, um, you know, that just those times I had working with Travis, um, you know, were a major, major influence on me. I still I still really cherish those that the time I got to play with him. Yeah, no, he's a super good dude. And like you said, definitely one of the deeper people we've met. And Honestly, he's been on my list of people I wanted to interview for a long time. And I'm definitely glad that I waited because he's got the the music school now. And I, and I definitely want to talk to him about that because that's, you know, I mean, I know he's always been into doing stuff like that, but it's cool that he's got like something like that now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I definitely need to, I need to reach out. So, um, yeah. Eventually though, Travis stopped singing and you ended up becoming the lead vocalist though, right? Yeah. That was an interesting thing. It was like a temporary thing. Um, Travis just, you know, again, like, like I, I was kind of the one that like wanted to push the band onto the road and we started doing some regional stuff. You know, I remember doing the show in DC and, you know, we started doing some, some Northeast touring and um, Travis had a job at the time that he just, he couldn't, you know, take some, take time off for some of the regional touring stuff that we wanted to do. Um, so it was just sort of this understood thing that, you know, if, if, if Travis couldn't do it, that, you know, we would sort of just play it as a four piece. Um but we never recorded anything uh, with with without Travis, and it was really just like a, an opportunity to just go out and, and play shows when Travis couldn't do it. You know, as that band evolved uh, a, a bit more, you know, and we started we did transition transmissions from the October Sky, and you know, um, Dustin, you know, ended up you know having a kid, and um, you know there was a there was a you know a tragedy within the band. You know, Josh Josh lost um, his girlfriend in a in a car accident, and. You know, a lot of kind of stuff happened that like brought the band closer to home um and it just it made it so that the band got tighter and we were able to sort of perform as that unit when we played but we, we didn't play as often um you know I, I remember geez i remember that coheed and cambria cd release show um i think that was actually one of our last shows if not our last show that was you know and that that was like a comeback show i think that was the first show you guys played after you had that car accident too if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah, it was a very emotional time. And like we I remember, you know, we, um, you know, we dedicated the, the EP to her. And um, yeah, after, you know, after that, it, it was just sort of like, I don't know, that band just sort of paused in time. You know, we never really broke up, but it just sort of like never like it was sort of understood that like, 
you know, a lot of the people in the band just sort of had new priorities. Um, and, you know, I was already playing in Nobody Cares when that when that was happening. Um, and I just remember that moment when I like realized that, you know, arm's length was sort of like had reached its point that like this is going to be as far as arm's length goes. I remember just the click in my brain that was like, OK, I'm like, Nobody Cares is is the band that is going to like get me out of this town you know as much as i love rochester and the scene like i needed to experience the world you know playing playing music and i i just knew that what we had going on at the time was it was like it was good enough to to break us out you know i just had a feeling before we dive into our uh, nobody cares rir i want to veer off just for a second because you talking about the kohi show reminds me of of something um that that and one other show were the two biggest shows that i ever booked on my own they both had 270 people at them and the other show uh well i want to i want to preface it by saying I, I i don't know if you remember this but i remember you and i driving around in the arm's length van when the, the converge jane doe cd wasn't even out yet but like you were saying with the promo cds i would get them for my zine and oh I yeah that. yeah i had that and you and i were driving around either getting ready for that show or putting up flyers or something but you and I went to that show together that I'm talking about now, uh, October of 2001. It's been talked about on this podcast a lot, but uh, Thursday, HopeCon, Carry On, uh, Death Threat, and No Warning. And I feel like you videotaped parts of that show, and, and I think Brian has the tape. And I want to get oh, that. Yeah. I definitely want to get that digitized at some point. Jeez, but, uh, yeah. I mean, what? What? Uh, I mean, just if you, if you think about the bill you just mentioned. I mean, the fact that all those bands. I mean, I see some of these flyers that were posted, you know, that, that are posted in on your page and you know, the Rochester Hardcore scene. I just see some of these lineups. It's just like, you know, absolutely legendary. But yeah, that one, uh, that, that one definitely stands out to me. Also, you know, Stash Fest, of course, the, the first, I think the first Stash Fest, or was it the second one that was at the, um, uh, was it at Eli Fagan Lodge? No, no, no. This is the one that I'm referencing. This is the first Stash Fest with Thursday. Oh. That's the Thursday Hope Con, Every Time Wait. I Die. No oh, warning. Every Time I Die. Yeah, okay. you, you were walking around with a video camera and like we interviewed the drummer from the Hope Conspiracy and you were asking him about like, why didn't he have his mustache? And he right, was making right, fun right. of me for having okay. one. I want to say, I, I didn't. What's that? I didn't hear you mention every time I die uh, when you first brought the show up. And yes, uh, because that I remember every time I died just and Thursday, you know, both of those bands just like I was just like enamored with both of those bands at the time and just being so like, just just like suspended in like the reality was just completely suspended for me at that show i remember standing up on a chair um you know like on like if you're looking at the stage i was on i was on like the left side like standing up on a chair and you're right i was filming this is all kind of coming back to me now and um yeah walking around with a video camera but um yeah that that show sorry i didn't put that together uh at first but that show is like one of the absolute highlights of you know any any music experience i had in rochester and that also has to piece things together for you, too, because you referenced, like, obviously, Glassjaw, and I brought in, like, Incubus and those bands. But at this point, now you see, like, Thursday, and Every Time I Die was starting to do it, too. Like, there were so many bands, not just from the hardcore scene, but, like, kids that were hardcore kids that started playing, like, like more commercially acceptable music. And, like, the shit just blew up. I mean, look at Coheed and Cambria, too. You know what I yeah. mean? So that had to make Jeez. you realize that you could start doing this, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that that was all stuff that was just sort of like, you know, I just would watch those bands with like huge stars for eyes, you know, I was just like, wow, like the reaction that these bands are getting, 
Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, they can play alongside hardcore bands. Cause I, you know, I loved hardcore bands, you know, I was really into Converge, as you mentioned, I was really into Drowning Man. I always remember that, but like, um, I love that stuff, but like my passion was always like the melodic side. And when I saw bands like Thursday, when I saw bands like Coheed, you know, like just capturing the hearts of people that primarily loved heavy music. Like I was like, wow, okay, this is my moment, you know, like this, I can do this. So I think that's a good way to segue into Roses of Red, too. Um, you mentioned Arm's Length. You played in Arm's Length pretty much right into when you joined Roses of Red then? There was, I think there was about a year crossover, um, you know, because Arm's Length couldn't be as active as I wanted. Um, you know, I remember, I remember, like, being friends with Matt and Brian. And, you know, they, they kind of, you know, we started talking about where we where they wanted to take that band. And at the time, it was nobody cares, you know, as you as you know, and um, you know they were like a you know real just kind of uh, just just straight up punk band, you know, when they first started. And I remember actually now that I think about it, wasn't there a, wasn't there a completely unreleased nobody cares album that like you were supposed to release that like they recorded at Watchmen and just never came out. Well, no, I think that's the one that we did release, but I think it just ended up being like that you had to do vocals for it, which we'll get to, right? There was there was one that Carl played drums on, if I recall, that like it was a whole session that Carl played drums on, and it was pre me joining the band, and um, I just remember hearing these songs, and I, I I think I remember there was conversations about you putting it out, but then um, the transition kind of happened where like Carl wasn't going to do the band anymore. And they sort of wanted to reinvent the sound a bit. Um, I don't know if you remember, but like Matt, Matt and Brian were like really influenced by like um, like eighties rock at the time. Um, like the karate, I don't know if you remember we did an EP that was like full on Karate Kid theme. <laughs> strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Yes, exactly. And it was like like for some reason they just got really into that like sort of like. Uh, I don't know. It was like this interesting mix of like punk, but also this like epic sort of uh, late eighties rock sound. And I joined the band like right when that was happening, it was just sort of, it was like fun for me because like, you know, it was so energetic and so much fun and like, you know, um, but yeah, we did that demo and then, you know, we, geez, we, um, you know, we played around town, you know, for a while. It was me, Kevin Mahoney, uh, Matt and Brian Gordner. And, you know, we played around town for a while before we actually, you know, wrote enough stuff to go in and do a full length together. But uh, going into the studio and doing that full length was an absolute crazy turning point. Now, I don't know how well you remember this, but I want to say the first show that you played drums for RAR, and I could be, or no, it was still called Nobody Cares at the time. I could be wrong on this, but I want to say it was a show that Rory booked in Java's basement. And if, it was, if that's not the first show you played, it's the first one that I saw with you on drums. It sounds right. It sounds right. That detail's a little bit foggy, but um, it sounds right. Like I, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, you mentioned the first Arms Length show and the first Nobody Cares show. Like, I remember just like going into these, like just being completely like like terrified and unprepared because, like, I don't know, it was like a totally different time then. Like, like now, if you need to prepare for you know a show or joining a band, it's like everyone can you know share music via the internet and like I can listen to it on my phone and. I have it with me everywhere. I can listen to it in the car. Like back then it was like, you know, you might get two or three rehearsals in and then you're playing a show together. And it was like, you know, totally terrified. So, you know, I, I, I remember joining that band. Yeah. Like list, like, like learning some of their older stuff, but then we also had this like new, like I think we wrote three or four new songs, like as a unit in like two days of rehearsals. And then we were out playing shows, but um, 
it sounds about right that yeah it would have been like it's like a java's basement uh a java's basement show you're probably right about that well when i finally interview matt i'm sure him and i'll get more into like the actual history of like when they were nobody cares but i will say and i think you're probably right about me talking about releasing that full length because right before you joined the band is when i really started because i i had been a familiar with the band since like 97 but like yeah. 99 2000 is when they really started to hit their stride because like they had that i don't know if it was just called honey oi like that song exactly just, yep yeah they started having like more serious songs that were like not like not rise against but just like more like melodic hardcore and i was like yo now yep. now these guys can start like touring and and like being like a quote-unquote like more real band you know what i mean and matt and yeah I were they were a little like they were a little like kind of goofy before that and you know while there was a scene for that like it was just like you know i i wasn't i wasn't sure that that particular formula for them was gonna like take them super far but you're you're right and i remember i remember getting really interested in that band around the same time like honey always struck me but I, when you when you finally talk with matt uh ask him about the unreleased nobody cares uh, i believe it was a full length because i remember hearing that and being like wow this is like so cool and you know if they need a drummer like i am in and like that's when that's when that that happened yeah i mean and they definitely like released like vinyl like even when they were like a a, a, a pop punk band at the beginning or whatever you want to call it because they had like a split seven inch like a couple split seven inches actually and you know i i i, I definitely appreciated what they were doing back then but you could tell that they started to become more of a serious band probably like a year before you joined and then i i didn't mention this in the beginning of the interview but like i always kind of knew like like you and i were talking that you were you were like a serious musician type person who was gonna like try to do more serious things in the in the music scene or whatever i could tell just from that teen center show when i saw you play with shoe pillow so always kind of seeing <laughs> your always kind of seeing your trajectory with music and stuff and then hearing that you were joining the band i was like this kind of completes the puzzle i mean obviously being friends with with carl or josh or whatever it, it was kind of like a weird type of deal you know but like it, it, at that point you guys eventually changed the name anyways and it was pretty much a different band different sound you know what i mean so it was kind yeah. of, you know, and I, you know, it's funny, like, I didn't really know all the details of, you know, what happened with, with, um, with Carl, uh, Josh, um, like, I didn't really, I don't know, I guess it was like a little, a little bit of a different time where like, not everything was just like publicized or like, like communication was just not as easy. Um, so I don't really re know what happened with that. I just know, like Matt and Brian approached me about, you know, playing drums and yeah, it, it, um, I mean, geez, you know, looking back now, like that, that decision to join that band, like completely changed the course of my life, you know, pretty well. Yeah. And it, and it, and it had a, a profound uh, effect on my life too, obviously, as we'll get to, um, I mean, we can pretty much just start diving into that, I guess, you know, cause that's probably Let's the next it. chapter. Um, so like you said, Matt, I, I feel like Matt and I must have already talked about doing a full length before, because I remember and him and I will talk about this more in depth or, you know, I don't know how we'll get into the technical stuff we'll get into, but I remember like when you guys were getting ready to record this full length, he basically was like, yeah, you're going to put this out, you know? And I was like, yeah. okay. But as I've referenced on here several times, I had like too many releases planned. So I don't even remember how this all worked out, but it, it, he was like, we want your name on there. We want you to definitely do this. And obviously I'm forever grateful for it because, you know, it's a classic recording and, you know, it, it, it honestly helped me secure distribution through Lumberjack too. So let's, nice. um, Let's kind of talk about it though. Like it was handshakes and heartbreaks. You guys ended up yeah. on Watchmen. Now I know initially Brian was going to be the, the still doing like lead vocals while playing bass uh, or no guitar at that point, right? Yep, yep. We had Kevin on bass at that time. Yeah, so Kevin was playing bass, but 
Um, I remember Matt calling me and saying, like, yeah, it's it's not really working out with Brian on vocals. Like, did you guys decide like right away to have you to have you sing in the studio or was it kind of like something you guys had to talk about or? Yeah, it was it was it was pretty wild. And it actually, you know, to me, it speaks to the commitment that everybody had in this band to to move it forward, you know, because that was a difficult that was a difficult decision. And I think a lot of bands might have like paused or sort of crumbled, you know, in that moment. Um, but, you know, we we had a ton of songs prepared, you know, between Strike First, Strike Hard, we had done a ton of touring, you know, and, uh, you know, we took we, we went on the road, you know, full U.S. tours um, completely on our own. I mean, geez, you mentioned an arm's length band. I pretty much drove around in a conversion van because, like, I needed it for tour. And, uh, you know, my mom was horrified by that. But that was, that was what I drove. And I remember Kevin built us, you know, like a wood trailer. And we, we literally circled the country. Um, you know, I remember having a couple dates here and there booked, but you know, geez, we would, this is before the internet, of course. And we would like, we would like go to a town without a show booked and we would go to like the boardwalk or go to, you know, the bustling kind of area of the town. I don't know. We'd like make up some story because there was no internet again. Nobody could like fact check stuff. We would be like, we would go, we would go on the road and we would say like, Oh, we're you know we're on we're on tour with All American Rejects right now. We just have a night off, you know. And uh, you want to you want to hear our CD? You know, you want to buy one? And we would sell CDs like like that. And we would like go to local shows, and we would you know maybe meet the promoter of that show or the bar owner, and we would like ask like, hey, there's a show like in two nights. Can we like hop on that show? You know, so we would spend like two or three nights in a town networking and meeting people and then we would like get on a show and then we would you know maybe get a couple bucks or sell a couple cds and we would just move on to the next town that's like how we did it um and we did this multiple times you know uh but there was like a few there's a few kind of key moments in that touring you know um you know you introduced us to uh, a band called evergreen terrace you know who was out of florida and you know they were super heavy and you know um but like somehow when we went to florida they kind of took us under their wing and they put us on some shows i remember playing like a few shows with them in florida this was as an unsigned band um i remember you know going to going to shows um when we were you know uh, just a band around town we would all go to shows together all four of us all the time you know dressed in like denim and uh <laughs> i think we had like patches with like that that strike first strike hard you know logo on the back um we would all go to shows. We would meet, you know, bands like Count the Stars on Victory and Glass Eater on Victory. And, you know, eventually we did some regional touring with those bands. But, you know, in between Strike First and Handshakes and Heartbreaks, we did a ton of touring on our own. And we became super tight as a unit, you know, through that experience, you know, just like living in a van for, you know, literally six to eight weeks at a time and not really having a plan and having to figure it out. So, you know, when we finally got into the studio, you know, we had a ton of road tested material that we really loved and it like went down super fast. I mean, if you listen to the music side of that record, it's just like, it's super tight. You know, we were like really dialed in at that point. But um, when we actually, you know, went to um, lay the vocals down, uh, it was actually Brian, if I recall, that just sort of like wasn't feeling like, you know, it was the sound that that he wanted. You know, it's one thing to play the songs in like a loud basement and like, you know, be singing over top. But it's another thing to be like at Watchman Studios in an isolated vocal booth recording your vocals. It's just like, he just wasn't feeling the way that it was sounding over top, you know? And um, 
don't know. We were just sort of like put to this like really difficult decision. I remember we paused the recording. We all went to Mighty Taco, um, of course. And uh, we just sort of decided like, you know, it was sort of known that I had done some vocal work in arm's length. We just sort of decided like in that moment, I remember going to Mighty Taco and we just decided like Vincent is going to move the vocals. And I was like, I have a friend, his name's Mike. I work with him at Guitar Center. I'm like, I'm going to call him right now. And I'm going to tell him about this. I'm going to ask him if he wants to join, join the band. So literally called Mike. I was like, dude, we're making this transition. I'm going to slide over to vocals. Do you want to play drums? He's like, yep. And we spent the entire night in the hotel room, like reworking melodies, rewriting lyrics, like figuring out exactly what we were going to do the next day in the studio to record that record. And we, we did it. We did the work. We stayed up practically all night. We reworked some things. Obviously, there's some Brian vocals on there. There's still some Matt vocals. So we kept some some of the original stuff. But pretty much all the stuff you hear vocally on that record was written the night before. And, like, we just all crunched together as a band to, like, make that happen. Um, you know, in, like, a spur-of-the-moment decision. It's a pretty wild story. Now, I feel like, and I might get him on here eventually, I feel like that phone call pretty much changed Mike's life, too, because he ended up in, in, as a fill-in for a bunch of crazy bands, and now he's done, like, so much crazy shit with drums, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike was always a, a fantastic drummer. I mean, I, we worked together at Guitar Center, and I remember, you know, he had some amazing, you know, amazing projects going on around town, and um, he was of that same mindset, too. Like, I just knew from working with him that, like, he wanted to do it as he wanted to do it like as for a living you know he didn't want to be working a day job and playing shows on the weekend like he wanted to be playing drums every day so i knew he was the person to call and you know he he um you know he he opted in and like from that moment when that unit was formed where you know mike was on drums and we had kevin and brian and matt and i was the singer like we just we just like you know decided like all right like we 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 love this record we love what it means to us and you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tour this we're gonna show it to as many people as possible until you know um someone kind of you know bigger gets behind this where we can bring you know take it out of take it out of rochester you know but the fact that you and and pat were behind it from the beginning you know was a huge thing because you know we didn't have the resources to promote it necessarily we didn't have the, the funds to put it out um you know, so without without having you guys to launch that record, you know, um, we would would not have been able to, you know, meet some of the people that that we met. You know, um, that that actually were were people that helped us, you know, get the trust skill deal. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to that in a second. But there's something I wanna I wanna mention real quick that I was thinking about while we were uh, glossing over this era or whatever. Um, by the time this episode airs, I, I will have already aired an interview with Ben from Such Gold. And I'm thinking to myself now, like bands like Such Gold, Four Years Strong and all these other bands were like pop punk bands. And they like kind of kicked off the whole kids stage dive into pop punk bands uh, era. But that's not exactly true because you can definitely. And again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but Tom Zenz and I were definitely stage diving to Roses of Red (laughs) 2003, 2004. And let's not forget at the Glass Eater show that I booked for you guys at the Penny Arcade that D-Lo definitely fucking staged over to roses are red too. oh my god see those are those are moments when you know i wish i wish that there was you know like a, an iphone present so we could revisit those moments but i guess they'll just have to live in our brains but you're right i remember uh, i remember that became yeah huge huge sort of calling card it's like when when is enterprise gonna stage dive 
Yo, there's there's bad business has recently like resurfaced with some online stuff and they've been like posting old videos and stuff. And I was Maybe. watching I was watching the video that Dan posted last week of an American Nightmare show that I booked with them. And you can literally see me what like like thinking in my head, like, am I, is this is there enough room for me to stage dive now? Like, oh, yeah. It's just, yeah. Like, it's just so classic. And, you know, shout out to Tom Zenz. I hope he's doing well. I haven't talked to him in a while. I'm sure we'll, we'll you know, we'll reference him in a minute, too, obviously. Um, and then shout out to D-Lo, too. I, I talked to him the other day and, and he was asking when the next show was. And he said he'd be there. And I was like, yo, you better stage dive again. And he said, he said, we'll try to make that happen. So <laughs> we have Amazing. iPhone. We have iPhones now. So we'll definitely be filming that. <laughs> yes yes that definitely needs to show up on an instagram reel somewhere for so, sure so we're getting into the to the real the real deal uh rar era now obviously i remember matt calling me and coming over to the uh the townhouse that pd and caitlin and i lived at at the time uh in oh, yeah. 2000, 2003 maybe it must have been by that point yep, yep and telling me that you got it was down to trust kill and victory and i was like this can't be really happening is this real you know what i mean because if you think back to that era, like no bands from Rochester had broken through those doors that I can think of. You know what I mean? Like there were bigger bands here, but like no bands had like signed to bigger labels yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I remember the the like the mad the maddening process that that was, you know, to um to get those labels attention because you know, you think about these days like like you know, current days, it's like, you know, you email people and they could check your Spotify plays. They could check your Instagram followers. There was none of that. And like, you know, I don't want to sound like I was the first person that got a record deal without the internet, but um, having to do that and like, you know, geez, we were, we sent, you know, press packs to both Victory and Trustkill. We went to Chicago. We drove to Chicago specifically to play for Victory. You know, um, I would call, I would call Tony repeatedly and, you know, wouldn't hear back for days and weeks at a time. And it was like, man, that whole process was, was, was maddening, you know, and I, I just wanted it so bad. I remember, I remember one moment in that process when like, I remember um, we were waiting to hear from Victory about, you know, if they wanted to do something. And I remember seeing the announcement that Hawthorne Heights had signed. And I was like, uh, you know, I just, I sort of like was so upset about that. Cause I was like, man, you know, this is, this band is going to like, they're going to, Victory's going to put all their, you know, sort of, backing behind this band and they're they're not going to want to work with us yeah geez i mean just the fact that we were even talking to both of those labels and it's just sort of surreal uh that we even had you know conversations with both but um yeah i just remember i want i mean my ears are getting red right now just thinking about it that's what happens when i get stressed i remember that being so stressful for me because i was so poor and i was like so just like on the brink of like all right do i need to get a real job here or is this going to happen and like it, it so came down to just like the wire for us as, as people as to like, whether or not we were going to be able to just like, you know, do like put our whole energy into this project. And, you know, finally the, the trust kill offer came through and it just like, you know, changed everything, you know? Now I want to say, I feel like Matt would have been like coming to me for at least some advice. And I would have definitely been like, go with trust skill, which for me, that's more of like the, the real hardcore kid or whatever. Cause even like, even though Truskill did become like more like of a glossier label later on or whatever, like for me, like I would see Josh at all these shows. I had somewhat of a working relationship with them with my fanzine. You know what I mean? Like, but he just, yeah. he just seemed more like hands-on. Whereas Tony had like a full staff, you know what I'm saying? Like I could picture him coming to like some shows, but like from what I've heard, like when you auditioned for victory, it was like a private type thing or whatever, you know what I mean? So 
Like, am I? Yeah, right we performed. Like, we that? performed in there. We performed in their office. That, that had to be. Yeah. Speaking of like awkward and feeling like nervous and shit, your ears had to have been fucking pink by that point. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was. It was very different. You know, we when we played for for Trustkill. It was like at Bloomfield Ave Cafe in New Jersey, and it was on the Glass Eater tour and. The crowd was like out of their minds. People were like hanging off the rafters and stuff. And it was like we just knew like that was that was it, you know. But like, um, yeah, we got that feeling too, you know. I mean, nothing against victory. I remember Jason. Jason at victory was like a big Jason Link. You know, he was a big you know kind of advocate for us. And you know, we made friends with a lot of people on that label. You know, we mentioned Count the Stars, Dave Shapiro, the Glass Eater people. Um, we made a ton of friends on that label that we you know we even you know toured with some of those bands later on, but. You know, ultimately, um, you know, what really kind of got Trustkill's attention, though, was, you know, it was actually an arm's length connection. So I remember arm's length. This is the hustle that we had. I remember arm's length showed up at Hellfest one year. We weren't even on the bill. You know, we showed up and we basically just decided to hang around in case like somebody had to cancel or in case like something opened up where we could play. And, you know, I remember like Matt Dunn, like I was just sort of like hassling him that day to try and get a spot and it actually didn't it actually ended up that we didn't play um but we we went out there anyway to just try and get a spot but like we just figured hey let's hand out some flyers whatever we could do and meet some people but matt ultimately i think he like recognized the hustle um you know that i had and you know when we had when i transitioned over to nobody cares and sent him that stuff i think you know he just sort of followed us the whole time and i remember him bringing us out to syracuse to play some really big shows i mean geez we played with My Chemical Romance and, and Story of the Year and Berlin out in in, um, in Syracuse before we were even signed. And I think ultimately, if I if I had to credit like, you know, one direct person for introducing us to Trust Kill would be Matt Dunn. So thanks, Matt. Matt's definitely a good dude. He's obviously on my list of people to get a hold of eventually. Um, and I, I want to mildly correct one thing about that, because I think I've seen the flyer recently. So you're talking about Hellfest 2001. And I think you guys were on the bill. But it got it was one of those years where it was supposed to be three days and it got messed up and broken into two. And I think oh, okay. a bunch of bands, not just you, like Miles Between Us, who was also on my label. I think they showed up hoping to play too. But I'm gonna get Mark the Shark or Pone on here eventually, hopefully, to have him tell that story. Cause when I worked with him at the sub shop in Village Gate, he told me that story several times of Matt Dunn coming up to him and being like, Yeah, no, it's it's not happening. But the way he would tell it. You know, I mean, you remember Mark? He had some funny, some funny ways of telling. Oh my god! Yeah, he'd be like, he'd clap his hands, like, "You guys aren't playing today." Exactly. Please, 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 please go home. Yeah, I remember Mark. Yeah, and whatever. You know, like that was a discouraging moment. And you're right. I think maybe we were on the bill, but like, I think we knew going out there there was a possibility we weren't going to be able to play, but we went out anyway. But um, yeah, that was a discouraging moment. But again, I think Matt sort of saw the hustle, and you know, that stuck with him. You know, as I sort of shared this this next project with him, so um and we just kept just kept it going you know did did you guys communicate with matt at all during the process though or did you guys just go straight to josh at that point um i don't think we oh you mean uh during the process of like talking about a record deal yeah yeah well you know matt was bringing us out to syracuse and you know he had the he had handshakes and heartbreaks and he he knew that we were touring a lot on that record you know we even sort of doubled down on the evergreen terrace um uh relationship and they actually got us on like a two week run. It was Evergreen Terrace, Norma Jean, and nobody cares at the time. And this was like Florida and South Carolina. And, you know, we were unsigned, but we were like touring with Norma Jean. It was crazy. But, um, you know, we just kept like 
keeping Matt informed of everything that we were doing because we didn't like know Josh directly. We just knew Matt, you know, from the Syracuse connection. And um, I think when we finally got that Glass Eater tour and we had that show in Jersey that was like really close to Trustkill, you know, Matt was the person that kind of said to Josh, like, hey, you, you really need to see, you know, check out this band. Um, you know, they're out there like really working hard. And uh, Josh came, took us to Applebee's after the show. And, you know, we a few months later, you know, we uh, we had the deal signed and um, it was crazy. But I mean, that whole process, it was like, you know, uh, Handshake Starbucks came out June 03. And we actually got the Trustkill deal under a year later. So it was a really condensed sort of hustling time for us to really try and take the momentum we had with handshakes and roll it into, you know, a bigger deal that was going to, you know, kind of give us some new opportunities. Now I want to say, as we get into like the crazy tours and stuff, I don't know how much you remember of this, but I am a little envious because eventually I'm going to have to get Jeremy Burke on here too. Um, Oh man. Yeah. So I remember you guys introducing to me him at the time. And I don't know if you remember, like, after I put the CD out, it was pretty much just, like, a given that I was going to tour with you guys and, like, do the whole touring thing and shit. But then, like, maybe a month before you guys went on that warp Tour, I remember messaging you and being like, dude, I would rather just be a manager at Wendy's than do this. And you were just like, uh, 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 I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. it's it's one of the dumbest decisions I've probably ever made in my life. But I was like, <laughs> at the time, I was making, like, 26 grand, which, you know isn't a lot now but to me back then it was and like i didn't know what i would make on tour and you know and yeah. having talked to jeremy about some of the warp tour experiences i'm like i definitely would have made more at wendy's obviously but you know thinking about the connections that he made through touring with you guys and just the experiences i do get a little envious sometimes you know and seeing the success that he's had is is just tremendous you know but i i do know that that would have come for him either way because that's like having gone to parties with him and shit like you like kind of like how i knew you wanted to be like a musician you kind of knew that he wanted to be like a host of something special and that's kind of what he's ended up doing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and honestly you, you doing the Wendy's thing was great. Cause I remember all the, you know, all the drive through nights and, you know, getting the nuggets that were, that were going to be tossed at the end of the night. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that was crucial for sure. Hold on. You guys rolled through and you're in the van the first night you got at the Rose of the Red van and, and I gave you a bunch of food through the drive through. And the next morning I was talking to the morning managers about like this and that. And the guy who opened was like, oh, uh, so who's that band that you're friends with? Whatever, <laughs> like, you can tell just from seeing the band. And I just played it off because I knew what they were asking. I was like, I'm not telling about the food I'm giving away out of this fucking place. You know? Uh, but anyways, yeah. So this is around the time when you guys started to get real serious with the tours, right? Yeah. I mean, um, so we had the um, we had the deal signed and we had the record recorded. We, you know, um, we had recorded some demos that we sent to Trustkill, you know, before we signed. And. Uh, those had gotten some cool, some cool circulation, like absolutepunk.net put us on a compilation. And, um, you know, so we had, we had a ton of material like ready to go right when we signed. So we went down to Portrait Recording Studios in Jersey. We recorded it. This was like spring of 2004. And, um, you know, we were just like doing all the stuff to get ready for that, right? Artwork, photo shoots, um, you know, publicity campaigns. We were like, wow, this is the real thing. This is happening. And um, the war tour thing was actually sort of like a unexpected thing. Um, if I recall, 18 Visions had to drop from their spot. Um, it was on the Smart Punk stage. And uh, because 18 Visions dropped, you know, Trustkill was kind of managing, you know, their appearance on there. And we were sort of this new, this new band that, that had recently signed a label. And um, they were able to get us that spot. So we ended up doing like two weeks on the 2004 Warp Tour 
this was before conversations was even out. Conversations came out September 2004. But yeah, I mean, from the from the moment we signed, you know, we were we were going to be out on the road anyway. But like the fact that we can now say the record, the trust scale debut is coming out in September, that just like blew everything wide open for us because, you know, we, you know, the Warped Tour thing happened. And then I remember, you know, one of the first tours we did, one of the first tours we did after the record was out was um, Boys Night Out from first to last in Emory. And that was like a real last minute thing too. It was like, you know, a month before it's like, all right, Hey, you guys want to do this six week full U S tour with this package? And we're like, yep, we got nothing else going on. So it, it really ramped up really fast. As soon as we signed, we were just out nonstop. I mean, I think the first year, I think 2005, we were on the road 10 months that year, like just home for a week or two at a time here and there. And that's it. Yeah. And that's, and then now in retrospect, I'm like, man, I ended up traveling the country in 2006. Like I could have been doing all this shit with you guys, but I was just like, I don't know. I was like transitioning too to like not doing as much. Like you guys were pretty much the last band I worked with on the label too. Like I, I don't want to dive too deep into it, but there was like a couple of years where our, like my relationship with you guys got a little fractured too. You know, I'm sure you remember that. And you know, we, it, it was one of those like definite misunderstandings. I, I, I feel like probably more on my end and I was definitely uh, drinking more at that point. So I think like I would hear one thing and just be like, yeah, fuck that or whatever, you know, but I'm glad we ended up working things out and like it's water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned, you know, but. Yeah. I remember some of that. And I think, you know, there was some, there was some sense that, you know, I think like handshakes um, was, and, and you know, it, it, the listeners probably don't, maybe don't know that it was originally released as nobody cares. But when we changed the name uh, in anticipation of, you know, trying to get a record deal, because, I don't know, we would approach these labels as nobody cares. And it was like this gimmicky kind of, you know, silly name. And the music at the time just sort of stopped reflecting that name. And also, you know, as you mentioned, nobody cares that's history that, you know, rebranding the band as Rose the Red, it just sort of like, all right, everyone was kind of like, okay, cool. This is like a new, this is a new thing now. Um, but I think, yeah, like, you know, re-releasing it as, as Rose the Red and then, you know, getting that trust kill deal in under a year, you know, I, I think there was probably some sense that, you know, maybe we didn't, we didn't appreciate, you know, the work that you had done for us and, you know, we were just trying to move on to something bigger and, you know, um, we, we were, you know, really hustling to try and get a, like a, a higher profile deal. And maybe we weren't as, as, as expressive of our gratitude for your support as we should have been. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that, um, you know, in, as we, we sort of circled back around and we sort of understood that, you know, we, we had this, this, respect and understanding for each other and the relationship's been been solid since then but yeah i mean there's, there's always there, there can be those moments of misunderstanding and i think when you're younger you don't really have the conflict management skills to just be like hey josh like let's just talk about this dude you know um sometimes you just let shit fester and it's just it's kind of silly in, in retrospect well i have i have really bushy colombian eyebrows too so i do look angry a lot my girlfriend says i have rbf too so um I'm sure that nice. none of that none of that helps, but I, I will say that I've definitely calmed down, you know, as I've gotten older. But there was definitely a time where if something pissed me off, I would just be like, yeah, fuck that and fuck them or whatever, you know. And I'm glad that uh cooler heads have definitely prevailed for me in recent years. Cause yeah, know. well, it's harder work. And you know, honestly, even some of the the conflict within the band that happened later on, you know, that resulted in member changes and stuff. Like I, I always I think to myself quite a bit, like, man, if we just had a conversation. You know, like we probably could have worked through a lot of that stuff. But I just think when you're younger and you're inexperienced and 
you, know, you don't know how to manage conflict. Like it's like easier to just be like, man, you know, like write, write somebody off, you know? Um, but then later on you sort of realize like maybe that relationship was uh, important to me, you know? Sticking with my uh, envy, envious of, of Jeremy's thing though, let's get to the, I don't know how many there were, but I know there's at least one European tour with, with under oath, right? Yeah. So that was a crazy opportunity. That was uh, January, 2005. So that was, um, you know, conversations was out for four months. Um, this uh, person, Darren Toms was working for our distributor in the UK it was the Trustfield distributor and, you know, came across our CD and, and just really liked it. Uh, he was in a band called the hurt process. He was bringing, he was putting together a tour of under oath, Silverstein and the hurt process and uh they needed like sort of a young up-and-coming band to be the opener and um i remember when we got that invitation you know it came it came to us directly actually they wrote i think they wrote us on like myspace you know came to us directly and i would go to josh and i was like josh um this is kind of crazy but like they want us to come to the uk with like under oath and silverstein and the hurt process and like i remember the whole process of having to get like visas for that and trust kill helped us with that and our, our manager at the time and um that was crazy though if, like in in um in hindsight like we went over there like i don't even know how we did that like i don't even know how we had a driver i don't know what we did for gear like Trustkill just took care of all of that for us and it just speaks to you know how young and naive we were like we just didn't even ask questions we were like okay cool we have a plane ticket we'll just show up and we just did it you know um but that was you know an absolute absolute dream of a tour um it was like three weeks uk germany and the netherlands with with that package was that the biggest tour you ever went on pretty much with the band or well uh i probably i mean um actually no now that i think about it uh take action tour 2006 was probably the biggest one we ever did that was with um matchbook romance the early november chiodos and ember pacific and then also our second run on Warp Tour was was really successful also because like we had the record out and we had merch and people knew who we were. Um, but also, you know, we did a tour with Mill and Colin and Boys Night Out. That was crazy. We toured with the Plain White Tees. Um, so there was there was some some crazy runs that we did. But, you know, as far as like, I don't know, that Under Oath Silverstein bill, though, was like really perfect for the state of the band at the time. We were four months into conversations being out. We just got off tour with you know, from first to last in Emory and Boys Night Out, and then we rolled right into that, and it was just like, man, like, this is, this is like, this is the dream, this is what we were hustling for the whole time, you know, and uh, just kept going. Did you guys have a booking agent throughout the whole trust kill process? We did. Briefly, we worked with Matt Pike, um, was our booking agent for a while, and, um, you know, so he, you know, and that's just, it's one of those sort of, you know, vindication things that happens, you know, when you're, uh, when you get on a label, um, you know, as, as reputable as trust kill, you know, Josh just makes a phone call to somebody that he has a relationship with and says, Hey, you got to check out this band. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, Matt Pike's booking us. So yeah. And he was looking out for, for crazy opportunities for us. Um, so yeah, all that stuff just sort of clicked into place. We had Lance Brown was our manager for a while. He was Matchbook Romance and Play YT's manager. Um, so we had a really great team around us, you know, and we had a publicity team and, um, and, and, it was a great combination because we were we were prepared to just like work as hard as they wanted to work us. You know, we, we were just out there nonstop for a good two years after that record came out. And, and I don't know how much you really want to speak on this, but I have seen some like public like 
a few bands that were on Truskill had some pretty negative things to say about the label. But from what I've gathered, you guys had nothing but a good experience working with him, right? Yeah, I mean, Josh and I remain friends. You know, we hang out quite a bit, um, actually. Uh, we live very close together. And, you know, I think that, um, and, and this happens with us too, you know, running a record label. It's kind of funny being on the other side of it. But um, I think it's difficult sometimes as a band to, like, understand the role of a label, you know? And it, it, it looks sometimes like, you know, the splits are unfair or the royalty checks should be coming in faster than they are. Um, but, you know, realistically, you know, Truska was doing a ton of work for us. They were putting a ton of money out for us. And, you know, I look back at some of my emails to Josh and I was like, man, I was a, I was a little jerk, you know, I was a little punk. I wasn't like, I wasn't as appreciative as I should have been at all, you know? Um, and I, you know, who knows where some of those other bands are these days or if they sort of understand. And, and again, I don't, I don't know the exact feelings. But um, I just know that, that Josh was always, um, you know, very supportive of us, very, uh, you know, transparent with us and very fair with us. Um, and, you know, I, I, in my brain, I sometimes maybe chalk some of those other, misunder those other experiences up to misunderstandings. But I can't speak to those individual situations, but I know we had a great experience overall. I mean, and I can say, too, going back to our little kind of falling out process, like I know that there is someone in, in the band, not you or Matt, that thought that I had signed like a lucrative deal through Lumberjack based on your band. And that wasn't the case. It was just, they were distributing the CDs at that point. You know what I mean? And, oh, really? I don't, I don't remember that dialogue yeah. at all. Somebody said it to me and maybe that maybe it was a joke that somebody may even made. And honestly, I feel like the Lumberjack thing, like it was like when your CD came out, but the dude who did it was like through the hardcore scene. It was Mike from Premonitions of War who I had brought to nice. Rochester tons of times. Yeah. And yeah, but that's, that's, that's just an example, though. It's like, look how hard you were working for Enterprise Records. And, like, you got a distribution deal where you were going to, yeah, sure, you were going to sell a bunch of Rose the Red CDs, but, like, you deserve that, you know? Like, you worked hard. And, like, I don't know, for a band to look at you and say, you know, he's, you know, taking advantage of us or making money off of us, like, whatever. Like, we wouldn't have sold those CDs if you didn't do that deal. So, I don't know. I think sometimes bands, like, don't understand the role of a label and the fact that especially you know, if you're like trying to, to further the label and, and, you know, take some resources and put them into the next project, like there has to be some money made. Like, let's just be honest about that. You know, you brought something else up just there inadvertently and mentioning nobody cares to RIR makes me think of it. Uh, before we talk about like the, the last stage of the band, I guess. Um, initially on the first, I'm pretty sure on the, on the nobody cares CD, it says Blatherskite records and it has the, D the DJ with the X on his hand. Yeah, it does. And but then on the other one, it says Enterprise Records, and there's no X on his hand. And I'm pretty sure that it might have been uh, uh, this this band was the one who was like, dude, you got to get more serious with this and change the name <laughs> and make it look a little more serious, you know. And, you know, I don't remember which one of you guys was the ones that actually probably told me that. But I was like, you know, you're probably right. Because, I mean, Blatherskite's a cool name, but like it's like it goes back to the nobody cares thing. It's more of like a like a youthful you know, punk thing, you know, and Enterprise was more of a serious. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, like, even just the name Enterprise, like, sort of speaks to, like, all right, like, I'm I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to, like, make this a thing, you know? And uh, I think we were all kind of at the, in that same state of mind at that time. It's like, it, it went from, you know, this sort of, like, real, you know, sort of local independent thing to like now all of a sudden you're signing distribution deals and like we're signing with Trustkill and like whoa like this is turning into something that like maybe you know could be could be bigger 
So I think all of us were sort of looking at, you know, our entities and kind of saying like, all right, like what, a, you know, how do we, how do we want to put this out into the world? Um, but, you know, who knows, who knows if those were the right moves at the time, but um, that was just the feeling, you know, and I, I think, yeah, I was just looking at those CDs this morning. I have the, I have both versions, you know, the Digipack version and, uh, and, and the, uh, the jewel case version, but um, yeah, both, both, both very cool. I remember I still had a couple hundred of them for a few years because it was that point where like you couldn't really sell CDs anymore and, and the band had been broken yeah. up for a while. And I had a roommate who shall remain nameless who was like, dude, I could sell these for like however much a pop. And I was like, okay, dude, go ahead, you know? And he realized nice. he realized quickly though, he was like, dude, I'm not selling these. You know what I mean? Oh, that's funny. So, Actually, I, feel- I was looking at I was looking at Discogs today. There's one handshakes and heartbreaks on Discogs, and it's like $53 or something. Somebody wants for it. That's so. that's a, that's the same as the Stamfast CD too. Maybe it's the same person selling both. Um, that's funny. Now we'll get to the label a little bit, but have you had like have you ever had an issue like that where you're like, man, what am I going to do with the last like 150 or 200 of this record or whatever? Oh my god, yeah. I mean, the when arms length when arms length you know broke up, like I was I was left with hundreds of those, you know. Um, and I think I think in a move between apartments at one point, I ended up probably consolidating down to like one box and probably like throwing hundreds of them away, which is a bummer. But, you know, when a band, you know, kind of goes dormant, it's like, you know, what are you going to do? But, um, you know, again, it just it goes back to a conversation that we should have had, you know, like if you had CDs and you wanted to put them up on your website, like you just should have done that, you know, especially if the band was out there, you know, being active and stuff. But I don't know. We just. I don't know. Maybe we just we weren't mature enough to just have that conversation. But yeah, I mean, I've heard Jamie Jasta talk about on his podcast throwing like sending thousands of CDs to the landfill. So I don't feel as bad because that apartment that you guys carried me up the stairs to on Monroe and Rosedale back in the day one time, um, I had I had to have thrown out like 500 CDs before I moved out of there. You know what I mean? Like because the label was done and I just not I, I kept your guys CDs because I thought I could still sell those. But a couple other bands, I was like, yo, I have literally. Like, I don't even know how many fucking CDs. And I just had to, there were probably still some in my attic when that apartment burned down a few years ago too, I bet. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I hope that, um, you know, I hope that is not the case with, you know, the current label stuff. We can talk about that in a little bit, but I mean, yeah. my, we're, like I said, we're about to move into a retail space, like in the next couple of weeks. But I mean, my dining room is, you know, probably has 3000 records in it right now. So well, <laughs> we're, we're well, bursting. Well, I guess let's circle back and kind of close out RAR. I mean, I don't know, like, yeah. I know eventually the Gordner brothers ended up leaving the band and, and again, uh, shout out to Tom Zenz, wherever he is. I hope he's well, I haven't seen him in years, but he joined the band for a little while. Um, it's yeah. kind of like a weird, if you don't mind my saying like a weird transitional phase for the band at that point though. Yeah, it definitely was. And, you know, um, as I mentioned, you know, being on the road early on, you know, brought us very, very close together. Um, but also being continuously on the road for years, um, you know, also like tensions can arise just like any relationship, right? You know, you start out with, with any relationship and it's all good. You know what I mean? You guys were drawn together for some reason and the connections there and everyone's like really respectful of each other and sort of falling all over each other to like, you know, you know, like just lift each other up. But after a few years, you know, some of those, those niceties go away and, um, you know, you live with people, you know, in a van and, and little annoyances turn into, you know, things that, you know, are, are blown way out of proportion. And, you know, again, I think in hindsight, if, if we just sort of pulled the van over one night and said, Hey, we should just kind of like talk about some of this stuff, you know, that unit probably could have continued, but 
I don't know. There were just some personality, uh, some personality conflicts that started to happen. And, you know, some ways that the band was being presented, like in the media and sort of like, it was like the MySpace era. And, you know, some of it was about, you know, trying to be as, um, I don't know, just sort of uh, theatrical as possible. I don't know. Some of us just wanted to go a different direction than others. And um, yeah, it just sort of turned into a, it turned into a split, you know, and um, it ended up being, you know, Mike and myself that uh you know mike and myself and brad at the time he was the bass player kevin kevin like joined the band and then left and then joined again i think you know he had various phases in his life where he was able to to really dedicate full time to it and then other times he needed to be more at home and you know kevin always maintained a great relationship with the band all, all the way through but um at the time it was me mike and brad from detroit brad gilbo uh we met him just touring through detroit he was in a band called before i go and you know, he joined the band um, in between the albums um, when Kevin left. But yeah, I mean, Matt and Brian ended up exiting um, and we, you know, we all kind of went home and, and, and reconvened. Um, Mike had played with Sean in the past uh, in a previous project. And, uh, you know, we knew Tom from uh, from local bands as well. And, um, you know, we did, uh, it was, you know, me and Mike and, and Brad did a ton of writing for the record um you know before sean and tom were involved and sean and tom joined um closer to when we um you know actually went in to record what became of me i think they were in the band for about six months but that was a big record for us i mean geez we had a, a we had a big kind of setup for that you know we were one of alternative presses you know most anticipated albums of 2006 um we worked with brian mcturnan on that record who was you know very selective at the time brian you know brian was doing records with like monine and hot water music and senses fail so you know for Trustkill to approach him about doing a rose the red record and him saying yeah I'll, I'll, I'll spend a month with this band that was like a big moment for us you know so we ended up going going to um salad days for 30 days you know we were down there for four weeks recording that record and honestly it was a very um it was a, a very uh sort of introspective time for the band you know and you can hear it in the lyrics um you know there's a lot of fear of failure that was coming through in that record um you know there's a lot of heartbreak that was happening for like me personally there was a lot of reckoning as to like what happens if this record is not successful you know what are we going to do with our lives and if you listen to that album there's a lot of like there's a lot of worry and anxiety that's coming through but it was really i would say um i would say personally that the first record was it was personal and experiential but it was more kind of surface level band trying to make it you know new relationships um being you know just sort of trying to you know sort of under just trying to like put out concepts that i think people would connect with whereas what became of me is is very personal and very like um that was a good snapshot of where you know especially me and mike who were sort of the, the lyricists behind that record it was a very clear representation of sort of the um the transition that we felt like we were in as a band it was almost like a make or break moment for us and that kind of was towards the end. Like, I can't remember what the actual last year was, but I feel like it wasn't, you guys weren't around much longer after that, right? Yeah, I mean, What Became of Me came out June 2006. Uh, we did the Take Action tour, and it was really great. Kevin ended up exiting the band again. Um, that's when we got Andy Champion. Shout out to Andy Champion. Just released a brand new single, solo single. Andy's great, great person. But, you know, it just it kind of... I think, like, after a few years of, of doing the band... Um, we were all just sort of faced with personal decisions. Like, you know, can we continue to 
you know, circle the country, um, you know, nonstop and sort of live, you know, on you know $7 per day per diems and, you know, eat Taco Bell and just sort of live like that. And um, I, I don't know. I think that, again, in hindsight, we probably could have approached it differently where like maybe the band could have continued on, but maybe not in like a full time kind of situation. Like, I think at the time it was like, all right, if we're not on tour constantly and if this is not what we do at, for our living, like it's not worth doing the band. So the, the band's over, you know, but in hindsight, it's like we probably could have taken a year off and then like figured it out, you know. But again, you know, there were some some tensions that were sort of building in that situation, trying to figure out like, man, you know, has this band peaked already? You know, a year and a half ago, we're in Europe with Under Oath. Six months ago, we're on tour with, you know, Matchbook Romance and, and the early November. And now we're having trouble. We're having trouble lining up tours, you know, because um, it was it was also sort of a transitionary time for music in general, because like it was sort of the rise of the iTunes era. And CDs were sort of not a thing that people were going for anymore. So when you would look at like sales reports, it was like our, our reports were down from the first record. And it was a very different sound. You know, I think that um, uh, while we do get a lot of, we did get a lot of, you know, um, connection to that record. I think some of the earlier fans that like some of the more like sort of aggressive and screamy and sort of harder edge stuff, maybe it didn't connect with them as much. But yeah, it, it, it was, I'm very, very proud of what became of me. And actually, Trust Hill uh, is relaunching very soon. Um, they just announced this. I don't know if you saw that. But as part of that Trust Hill kind of folding a, years back, you know, what became of me, the licensing lapsed on that. And it sort of disappeared from the digitals. But we're excited because that's going to be coming back. And anytime I talk to anybody about Rosa Red and it's like, oh, what can I hear? Like, I always want to want to play them songs from what became of me because it just, to me, it's the best representation of like the sound that that you know I wanted the band to fully achieve. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was like a we took a shot and we 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 hit the bullseye for a while, but then you know with some of the member changes and some of the personal decisions that band members had to make um, in early two thousand seven. Um, we just sort of decided that, you know, it wasn't going to continue on, but again, you know, in hindsight, I almost, I almost wish that we just like paused and, uh, and sort of weren't as, we weren't as, um, what is it sort of, uh, impulsive to make that decision, but, um, it was the decision that was made at the time, you know, now we're in this vinyl era. I think we're going to see some vinyl reissues and some things that, you know, maybe weren't ever on vinyl together, or I'm sorry, weren't ever on vinyl in the first place. Um, Josh and I were literally just texting this morning and he was joking about a vinyl, a vinyl pressing of some Rose the Red stuff, but, um, <laughs> hopefully maybe that'll happen. Uh, I'm not sure if there's an audience for it, but, um, you know, we'll see maybe a short run kind of thing, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're really excited to, to have Trustkill back on the scene. Um, we're, I'm not sure if we'll see new material from Trustkill. It might just sort of stay as like this legacy brand, but, um, it was a good time in all of our lives and we're excited to sort of have it back and, and active again so weird that the other label that put out your other full length is planning on resurfacing soon too i'm planning on doing a hellfest series and i was planning on getting a hold of josh for like 99 or 2000 uh, 2000 i mean but um nice. I have to get a hold of him sooner i don't know because that sounds like something i definitely want to uh, talk to him about on here for so if if he wants to go on a podcast you definitely should obviously so have you uh have you thought about having josh on this yeah, no, I've definitely, he's, I have a huge list of people. I mean, I started off more regionally just to connect with people I was friends with, but like, he's definitely nice. somebody I want to interview eventually. And like I said, I'm doing every year of Hellfest eventually. And I, I already had him in mind to hit him up for the 2000 edition, but the, nice. the label thing, something I want to ask him about, obviously too. So maybe I'll just 
see if you want nice. to do a full interview at some point. Yeah, um, I mean, it'd be a, it'd be a great time. Um, you know, I think you'd be really up to to tell the story a bit, and um, you know, I can't speak for him, but uh, you know, it'd be really cool to see you guys work together on some some archival health stuff. I'm excited to hear. So you're saying Enterprise Records is back? I don't know how much we want to really talk about it yet, but I've definitely. Uh, All right. I'm at least going to, everything's going to go up digitally eventually. And I definitely have plans. Uh, that's all I'm going to really say. I have plans. It's something okay. I've been, I've been talking, I've been talking about this for a few months and I got to get more the ball rolling with it. So we'll, we'll, we'll once cool. we get everything, you know, situated, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, but this is well, definitely if, the first uh, time. What's that? That's amazing. Yo, go ahead. Go ahead. It's definitely first, the first, first mention on the podcast now? of it so far. And there'll be more mentions of it eventually. Uh, nice. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm honored to be part of this conversation. And if you know, if I can help in any way to uh, you know help navigate some of that you know label side stuff, let me know because we've learned a lot in the last couple of years on that side of things. No, I would definitely, and obviously, we'll be talking about that in a minute. And that kind of bridges the gap. But first, was there like an official last RAR show? Because I don't really remember there being one. Uh, there was not. We sort of we did a tour uh, in February of 2007 um that was with rookie of the year and four letter lie and um you know we just had some internal conversations that that was going to be the last tour we didn't want to make a big thing about it so you know we didn't we it wasn't really like the tone of it was not celebratory it wasn't like hey everyone see us off it just sort of you know the the tone within the band at the time was just not there was it was not great so we just sort of decided like that was going to be it um so yeah no official last show but one of our, one of my you know favorite last memories of the band, and actually just some YouTube footage of this, was a Christmas show that we played in 2006 at Water Street Music Hall, uh, the club at Water Street. If you look up uh, Rose the Red, Water Street, Last Christmas, there's a, a cool video of us doing our Last Christmas cover on there, and that that's one of my last uh, you know really really nice memories of the band. Yeah, the Water Street shows were always a good time. Um, totally. Now was a good time, I guess, then for you to tell me if there's anything you want like to bridge the gap between uh, Roses Are Red and High Tide, I guess. Well, you know, um, moving to New Jersey was largely, uh, you know, due to the Trustkill connection. You know, we had made a ton of friends and, um, you know, just connections down here. And, uh, you know, at the time when the band was, you know, on pause and ultimately dissolved, like the invitation was here to, you know, sort of set up set up a life, you know. Um, and actually, you know, briefly kind of joined some bands and started some some post-hardcore stuff down here that, you know, didn't really go too far. You know, I started a band called My Island for a little bit with Scott St. Hilaire, became a really good friend of mine, uh, ex-lifetime lifetime guitar player. And, um, you know, we actually have another band together. Yeah, I don't know. Just like the, I like all the sort of professional and, and new friendships I had were, were down in New Jersey. So moved down here in 2007 and... Um, I was just really inspired by like living near the beach, you know, and like in starting a new band, I just, I wanted to do something that was, you know, I don't want to do another like emo band or a, a rock band necessarily. Cause I just, I wasn't really in the state of mind of like wanting to like restart in that world. So like going back to our, you know, one of our first points, which like, you know, one of my earliest sort of influences was like that old fashioned rock and roll Elvis, the beach boys and stuff. Um, just decided to like start a band that um, was like a little more lighthearted and almost like in the spirit of the Beach Boys, but like with a little bit more of like a indie sensibility. So I started a band called the Brigantines, which was um, pretty fun. And we actually gained some, you know, kind of you know, like regional notoriety. We opened for Dick Dale a bunch and we opened for, you know, some some bigger shows. 
Yeah, just like, you know, being near the water and, you know, being in proximity to Asbury Park, which uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Asbury Park before. No? No. But, I mean, geez, um, you know, the town was, um, you know, practically a ghost town, you know, not even 15 years ago. And now it's like one of the most bustling, you know, East Coast tourist attractions there is. And there's some good and some bad with that. You know, there's there's um, a really great sort of, you know, scene that had had developed in the town, you know, around like Asbury Lanes and you know, sort of like indie kids running the Wonder Bar and, you know, um, just independent venues all around the area. And um, I, I don't know, I just sort of was really drawn to this area and just sort of just like l- was going to live here temporarily and then just sort of never left. You know, one of the one of the projects I started called Black Flamingos, where I play drums, it's sort of, sort of like this jazz meets surf combination. We call it surf noir, but it's literally two jazz players playing surf music um, and I play drums, but it's a trio. Uh, you know, we just like, recorded a record and we weren't sure what to do with it we weren't sure like who would want to put it out or if we even needed somebody to put it out so literally we just created high tide to like slap on the black flamingos record and um yeah here we are six years later and it's you know we have 40 artists on the label it's distributed by virgin music under universal music group and uh just left the corporate world to um you know do this full time so pretty wild yeah, you were getting into that, like I said, in the beginning of the conversation. And that's why I kind of wanted just to keep the conversation the way it was and leave it in the interview. But um, let's yeah. kind of let's kind of jump back to that though. Like I like I put in the notes, I'm not as familiar with this world, obviously. Like as a like when I was kind of navigating my way around, learning about punk and hardcore, I kind of I, I like I know you you got Man or Astro Man on some stuff. I I, I like them, and there's like a couple nice. other surf fans. I mean, Rochester had a couple you know smaller ones back then, but like. How like is this a is this like a huge like like uh, community I guess so to speak or I wouldn't say that it's huge but it you know it definitely exists and it's worldwide. Um, the interesting thing about surf music is that it's it's largely instrumental. So um, when you think about you know being an American band right speaking English right as as wide as wide reaching as an English language song is you know there's a large part of the world that may not understand or connect with that. Right. Um, And I think, you know, sometimes there's a tendency as an American, like if you hear a song in another language, like you might, you know, you might not connect with it as well as you would, you know, in in your native language. So uh, surfing instrumental makes it by nature sort of this universally appealing thing. Right. And, you know, some of the some of the connections that we've made through this label are further reaching than we did with Rose the Red. You know, for example, one of the most strong relationships we have um, you know, in this community is with uh, Lorenzo Valdembrini. He goes by Surfer Joe. He lives in Livorno, Italy. He does a huge surf music festival uh, called the Surfer Joe Summer Festival every year. He invited Black Flamingos to play that in 2017. You know, we met a ton of people from around the world, including Los Freneticos, who are from Argentina. They're on the label now. We met Le Agamemnons from France. They're on the label now. We met the 5678s from Japan, who played our event last year um and actually i i played drums for lorenzo on a tour of japan in 2019 we went over to J- japan and played for three weeks in japan playing surf music you know it's 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 not a huge community but it is huge in the sense that it is, it is literally a global a globally reaching community where the sounds you know the the sounds of the guitars the reverb the the, the dance beats um all of that is, is something that resonates from New Jersey all the way to, you know, the other side of the world. Like, I, I know you, you, like we were talking about in the beginning, this is like a full-time thing for you guys now, but like at what point, 
because like obviously okay, when I ran the hardcore label, it was something I wanted to do full time, but it wasn't actually like bringing in the revenue for me to make it a full time thing. And obviously, without, yeah. without getting too into the numbers, at what point did you kind of realize or was that just more recently that this could be like something you could just do as like a career at this point? Well, you know, part of running your own business is not necessarily just like making money or accumulating money. You know, part of running your own business is just the ability to even just like sustain it. You know, like I can take I can take sales from this pre-order and put it into the next project, you know, and that that passes the days. And maybe I have a little bit of a little bit of money that I take out to like, you know, buy groceries or, you know, pay the, you know, pay the pay the car insurance. Um, but you know, I'm not at all to the point where we're like, you know, accumulating money. In fact, this, uh, this, this jump is very scary, you know, especially with things like, you know, leaving a corporate world that had really great benefits. And now it's like, all right, you know, we're going to sort of figure that out on our own, but there's a lot of different revenue streams, uh, that we have created for ourselves, you know, um, but the label, specifically the label side is more like we've learned that we have, we have built this audience where you know, it's almost like when we put something new out, we just sort of know that we have this audience that's going to that's going to support it. The bands are able to go out and play higher profile festivals. I mean, as we speak, literally last night, one of the largest festivals in this community called Tiki Oasis, you know, the Surfer Jets were one of the headliners. They're they're like sort of the flagship artists on the label. They're an all girl surf group from Toronto. You know, they're they're just like doing doing really great things right now. But they just headlined a Tiki Oasis last night. Uh, they had a smaller band on the label called The Volcanics that played that. You know, the the bands are just, you know, they're delivering us music and we're putting it out and we have a community that's supporting it. And that's, you know, that's allowing Magdalena and I to just like roll that into the next project. And it's really great. But, you know, we do um, we do a lot of like DJ work too. We go out and, you know, we DJ around town and, you know, there's a few bars in the area that'll, you know, pay us a little bit to come and, you know, feed us and give us some drinks and, you know, we just go out and play records. In September, we're actually doing a DJ tour. So that's kind of fun. We're going to be going out to the Midwest, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Cleveland, and, and you know, playing records for about a week and a half. Yeah, there's a lot of different revenue streams. It's not just selling records. And honestly, you know, you said, like, what was the moment where we realized we could do this? Like, I don't know. It's still kind of scary. But I just know that um, I know that what, what was happening is I was going to my corporate job and my phone would be buzzing all day. And there'd be like, people that wanted to buy records, you know, record stores that would like ask for an invoice. So there was, you know, a mastering, uh, you know, mastering job that needed me to listen to it. Or there was, you know, a, a, a show for a band, you know, across the country that needed some information for the advance. And I would like not be able to get to that stuff, you know, until I was at home and I'd be tired. And I just, I was doing 40 plus hours a week at this job. And then I'd come home and do, you know, another 20 to 25 on the label stuff. And I just sort of realized like, if the label is demanding this much of my time, like I need to, I need to figure out a way to like make it the thing that I do. Cause I, I, I couldn't sustain, you know, full-time corporate work. And then plus like the demands of the label, you know, all good things, but the demands of the label kind of building up on top of that. So you're talking to me literally at the, the transition point. So it's, it's exciting, but also very scary. I know the high tide summer holiday. It, I mean, this, this episode's probably going to air like a few days before that happens. Like, are you guys booking that yeah. yourselves or? Yeah. Um, so that actually started again. I mentioned Lorenzo Surfer Joe. Um, my wife and I, uh, we got married in 2013. And one of, one of the things that was uh, on our honeymoon list was to go to the Surfer Joe Summer Festival in Italy that year. But we had, uh, you know, spent a bunch of money on our wedding and we just we didn't have the, the resources to get to Italy that year. So we texted my friend Jen 
who was running the Asbury Lanes at the time. We said, hey, Jen, you know, can we grab a Saturday in July? We want to book a bunch of, you know, surf bands and put together an event. So we sort of, we, we mirrored what Lorenzo was doing in Italy, and we just sort of did this little regional thing. Um, and it was really great. You know, 500 people came. We had a car show. We had vendors. I think we had like six or seven bands. It was in the old Asbury Lanes. We, we curated this little um, tropical uh, tropical cocktail bar in the back called Sam's Tiki Lounge. Sam was the bartender at the time. But it was very DIY. You know, everything was was super DIY. And we did that for a couple of years. And then um, Asbury Lanes closed down. So uh, it got bought and uh, it, it sorely needed some renovations. I mean, when Magda and I had our um, wedding reception there and it was a rainy night and like the roof was like leaking on our family you know like <laughs> but uh but it was amazing but um as lanes closed down so we needed to move so we, we changed locations over to actually a beach location uh at convention hall in asbury park we started to attract the attention of some international groups we actually brought this group messer chups over from russia for their first u.s tour ever we partnered with a west coast event called surf guitar 101 and they booked the West Coast side and we did the East Coast side. And um, we had message ups in 2016. Uh, and that was sort of the moment when it became this international thing. Um, 2017, we had low straight jackets. We had the Fathoms. We had Aqualads. That was down on the beach. Um, grew even bigger. I think we had 1,200 people down on the beach that year. Um, 18, we had Satan's Pilgrims. You might know that band. They came from uh, Portland. They flew over. We had a, that was a huge international bill. Le Agamemnon was there from France. Um, Surfer Joe was there from Italy. And then uh, we actually moved back to Asbury Lanes in 2019 because they reopened, um, you know, fully renovated. It's like a, you know, Brooklyn Bowl style venue now, but like state of the art. Sounds great. The lighting's amazing. And uh, that was our first time um, doing it as High Tide Summer Holiday. Previously, it was called Asbury Park Surf Music Festival. But um we, we, our idea with changing it to High Tide Summer Holiday is that first we wanted the brand represented. Um, High Tide like started in 2016, but it didn't really get like even serious until 2019. That's when we started putting out, you know, some, some higher profile records. So we wanted High Tide to be represented with the event. But also we thought that Asbury Park Surf Music Festival pretty much limits us to doing this only in Asbury Park, whereas High Tide Summer Holiday we envisioned popping this up, you know, in different places around the world. We actually did that for the first time in 2020. We did a high tide winter holiday in Pittsburgh that was really successful uh, in February 2020. It was like literally the last event that happened before the, the pandemic shut, shut us down. Yeah, high tide summer holidays returning. It's um, back in two weeks. And uh, yeah, we booked the whole thing. Uh, the talent budget's crazy. It's super scary. I wrote a bunch of huge checks. <laughs> and uh, you, you know what that feels like, but um, it's looking like it's going to be a great turnout. So um, we're really excited for this year and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And like I said, not to confuse the listening audience, however, many of them are going to attend this. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm uh, recording all these interviews all at one time, but this is going to air on August 15th. So uh, nice. I, think, I think it'll be right before your holiday kicks off. So um, love it. But that sounds like a really nerve-wracking thing to, to, to go through, obviously, like the whole process. But it sounds like it's been pretty successful. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it's a big thing. And, and honestly, you know, some of the decision for me to leave the corporate world was also so we could like put our, you know, full attention into this. You know, because it's, it's, a, it's a really, uh, you know, we get feedback on it every year. That's something people really look forward to. And, you know, there's, there's live music, there's tropical cocktails, there's pool parties, there's DJs, there's vendors. It's this whole takeover of Asbury Lanes and the Asbury Hotel, which is literally one block away from the Asbury Park Beach and Boardwalk. And, um, you know, it's gotten a little challenging over the last couple of years with some of the lodging costs in Asbury Park. I mean, some of the hotels are 
five, six hundred dollars a night there now, which is a little a little challenging. But you know, um, it's still a really great, really great town to host this in. And um, yeah, Magda and I feel way less stressed about it this year than we have in the past because, like, I've had you know the last couple months um, to to really just sort of focus on all the details. But you know, there's always some stress putting a show on. You know, you probably know every time I ever put a show on, even the old Water Tree shows with Rose the Red. Anytime we'd open the doors, I'd be like, nobody's going to come to this. <laughs> There's literally going to be nobody here. And then okay. people ended up showing up and it was fine. But I've always, I've always mentioned that when I talk about booking shows, especially at the Penny Arcade, which was similar, like going outside as Water Street, like you would go, you would pull up and you'd be like, please, please be a line. Please have a line waiting outside to get in this show. You know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, occasionally though, at the Penny Arcade, there'd be a line of like 50 or 60 people waiting to get in, but then that would be the whole show you know yeah yeah it's it's man yeah but uh being being a promoter that's like you know that hands-on like sure there's being a talent buyer but you're if you're a talent buyer you're buying for a venue and you know it's about your monthly performance versus any one show but if you are personally responsible for paying this band and putting them in front of a great crowd like that's that's a lot of pressure so yep we feel it before we start tying up loose ends, um, there's something that I've been thinking about while you've been talking about all this, and you even mentioned DIY once or twice. With running the label and now like kind of getting more into like a lot, a lot like bigger live stuff. Like, how much of that for you? Like, have you taken what you've learned from like the DIY hardcore and punk community and applied that to what you're doing now? You know what I mean? Being in Roses of Red and doing all the touring, um, you know, designing merchandise and you know the work ethic that went along with you know, selling that and, you know, making records and all of the marketing that went along with that. I mean, that was a huge, there was a ton of learns that I took with me into the corporate world. I think that's why, you know, I, you know, when I started uh, with my corporate job, like within a year, I was sort of, you know, working into sort of leadership level positions. And it's because like largely, you know, I learned how to run a business, you know, by doing the van you know, it was it wasn't this business that that blew up and became this huge uh, enterprise. No, but I learned a lot from it. And I also learned a lot about, you know, communication and relationships. And, you know, some of that was through mistakes that I made, you know, spending 15 years in that world. And then, you know, on the on the reciprocal side of it, taking some of the, the corporate stuff that I learned and applying it to the label, in terms of communication and making sure that like stuff is all on brand. I mean, you know, one thing you'll notice if you look at anything that High Tide does is, um, you know, you look at our feeds and stuff. It's like we we spend a ton of money and resources on design. That's like really important to us um, and a place that we cut corners. Or I'm sorry, a place that a lot of people cut corners. But I, I sort of learned that from, you know, not only the, the band years ago, but also into the corporate world. Everything was really meticulous um, with design. And, you know, now I'm applying it to the label. I mean, there's so there's so many lessons, um, but a, a lot of it is just like, man, even just like doing some like sort of, you know, reflecting, preparing for this conversation, you know, it it just really made me think like, you know, all all the relationships that were crucial to, you know, me, me and this group of people being able to go do this, you know, yourself, you know, Rob Antonucci, Brian, Matt Dunn, Josh um you know all, all you know jeremy all the people in in the rochester scene that you know many of whom um still keep in touch with everybody I just mentioned with the exception of like i haven't spoken with matt Dunn in a while but you know many of those people became lifelong friends and um you know it's 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 nice to be able to reconnect you know as we get older and sort of we we enter different phases of our lives um you know and i've, I've been following 
you know, your podcast and it's been really inspiring for me. And, you know, even started some, you know, Rose of Red socials just to sort of get some like nostalgic stuff out there. But, um, you know, again, I think circling back to the earlier point of like, it's nice to, to be nostalgic here and there, but it's also exciting to sort of talk about what's going on now. So I appreciate the opportunity that you created for me today to be able to sort of have both of those conversations. So thanks yeah. for that. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's kind of like the mission for this podcast moving forward is to make sure we educate like the, the people who weren't around when we were around on what, what we did, but also to keep an eye on what's going on now, because, you know, the past was great. But if you if you if you want if you want to be like one of those Uncle Rico types, you know, you're, you're in for a long rest of your life, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's true. It's 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 it feels good to revisit it. I mean, you know, uh listening to some of that stuff this morning and uh you know sort of just talking through this today you know feels feels really great i think um you know sometimes you just sort of internalize those memories and you don't realize kind of how how much those times sort of shaped who you are but um but yeah i mean it's 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 also exciting to to kind of talk about what's happening now so um really excited that we got to, to reconnect and i'm excited to hear that you got some some new projects in the works also I guess last thing that I didn't put on the notes while I'm thinking about you talking about all these like crazy projects that you've either uh, been like a part of yourself or just had a hand in with your label. What's the thing if you're able to pin it down, like what's the thing you're most proud of that you've been a part of? Most proud of that we've been, I've been a part of, I mean, um, interesting question. Uh, there's, there's a lot of moments. I mean, I think though that, um, I mean, being able to kind of be that band, as you mentioned, that sort of um, was at the forefront of kind of, you know, reaching that, that next level, you know, coming out of Rochester, I think was really uh, something I'm really proud of, you know? Um, and I think about all the work that went into that, you know, with the touring and with the, the press kits and with the, you know, just sort of like really trying to, um, you know, gain, gain the backing of people that could, you know, elevate the band. I think signing that that deal with Trustkill and sort of getting that vindication was definitely a huge moment. Working through some of the transition and releasing that second record, I think a, a lot of people that know Roses Are Red probably know the first record much better than the second one. But I would say like I'm really proud musically of that second record, and um, it's going to be coming back soon. Trustkill is going to be getting it back out on the digital. So if you're hearing this and you haven't heard that second record, I would I would definitely encourage you to check it out and sort of um, walk through you know kind of where we were at that moment it's very uh very vulnerable time for us coming down to jersey and sort of building a life here but also in this moment that we're talking you know sort of almost going back to that world of you know it's a little scary um to like have your own thing be your main your main hustle um it was much more comfortable to have a corporate job and a steady paycheck and work 40 hours a week and benefits but I don't know. I just, I always kind of knew that I would come back to this. And the fact that, you know, the label that literally me and my wife started just to slap something on a current project of mine has grown into, you know, internationally recognized and, you know, globally distributed label is just something I never expected, but it's something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really, uh, really proud of. And I think that, you know, if we talk in a year, you know, you'll probably see like a like a physical retail side that, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll actually have a physical presence in the world where people can come and shop and listen and, you know, interact with Magda and I. We may even have a staff. So I think a lot, there's a lot of things that I will be proud of that are, um, we're on the verge of like at this moment. So um, 
I'm really, really happy that we got to talk right now because if we spoke, you know, six months to a year ago, I probably wouldn't wouldn't be in this optimistic of a place as I am now. You know, it's weird because I've said on this podcast so many times too that timing is everything. Like there's so many people that I have on my list to interview and it just, sometimes I pick the right time and I, to peel back the curtain, I think you reached out for this one. So I feel like you picked the right time this time, but like, there's definitely been people that I've had on my list and I'm like, let's just wait a little bit. And then the, the time just comes up perfectly. Like it did for you, you know, some gravel. Yeah. Do that today. You know? Yeah. I, you know, you know, I think that, um, I think that at this, at this moment in my life, like I've, I've started to like, I've started to really realize like the value, the value that like creative energy has for me and like how, how much, it, how much it contributes to my, you know, mental and physical well being, And, um, you know, it was a total, total gift to be able to do that with Rose of the Red for those four years. And I feel like on the verge of this like new gift with this new label and, um, you know, been following the podcast and I just, I, I feel, I felt compelled to, you know, get the story out there. So thanks for, you know, accepting the, uh, the invite, the, the self invite, if you will. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to do it. And I will definitely say that speaking of like proud accomplishments, you guys were definitely like the band I was most proud to have worked with on enterprise. I'm not going to say that it was like my favorite release sonically. I definitely liked the music. I mean, I would probably put Stanfest on the top of that list, but totally, totally just the work ethic and everything you guys did. And like I said, like it, it was almost like, I've said this in other episodes when I talk to people whose bands get bigger, like seeing you guys get out there like that, it was like a win for our city too. You know what I mean? So that kind of, yeah, that, that, that means a lot. That means a lot. Yeah. So I think that's a good way to, to kind of end this conversation. So um, just if you have any shout outs or if you want to like plug what's ever coming up, like I said, this will air like August 15th. So. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, again, thanks. Thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for, um, you know, putting together this podcast. I'm one of many people that I know are, are really enjoying it. Um, you know, thanks to anyone that's listening and, uh, you know, definitely a ton of shout outs, um, you know, throughout the, the conversation and, um, yeah, you know, again, thanks for the inspiration to sort of, you know, revisit some of this stuff. We're going to get some of the, some of the older stuff out into the, into the digital world. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully as this conversation kind of gets out there, um, you know, other people that were maybe in, involved or, you know supported the band in some way, you know, might, um, you know, if you have conversations with them, they might be able to even add more to the story. So uh, looking forward to where you take the podcast and, you know, again, thank you for, for giving me this, uh, this little t window of time to, to tell the story. I, I know I'll be really excited to listen back. Yeah, well, it was definitely my pleasure. I'm glad we're able to do it. Um, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Um, I want to thank Vincent for his time with the interview um, as always, shout out to Greg Benoit, Jim Byrne, and Rob Antonucci for all the help with the podcast. Thanks to my family for supporting this and making space for me to do it. Um, episode 89 will be streaming shortly. Uh, thanks again to everybody who supports this podcast. Uh, see everyone real soon and stay safe.